Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. It has been a sobering and troubling week, has it not? We would be remiss if we would come together and not mention the brokenness and the pain that so many in our world are facing. And yet we would also be remiss to come together and not acknowledge the hope that as Christ followers we have. That the reason that we do this, that we get together at church week after week after week is is to come together and be reminded that we have a hope in the person of Jesus that is the hope that the world needs. And it's for that reason that we're doing the series that we've been doing, Culture Shock, finding our way and our influence in a changing culture. Sometimes it feels like never has it been more appropriate than now to be talking about these things. So over the last few weeks, Steve and Brian have talked about politics and the legalizing of marijuana and how do we deal with appetites that are unhealthy in our life. And a couple weeks, Steve talked about sexuality and today I'm gonna talk about the sanctity of life. In the following weeks, Brian's gonna have a couple weeks coming up and then the last week of the series, Steve and I are gonna team together to answer some questions. And some of you have been emailing in questions to our email at cultureshock at salemalliance.org. And as we've gone through this series, if things have been stirred up or you've thought, well, you said this, but I've always heard this, or what did you mean when you said that, or something we didn't address that you think, well, what about this? Send in those uh, emails. We'd love to have those ahead of time and be able to take a look at what kind of things God's stirring up in our community. And we'll be addressing those the last weekend in July. So this phrase, sanctity of life, in our culture expresses this long-going conflict and debate that's pretty polarized, that involves main issues such as abortion, physician-assisted suicide, which is now also known as death with dignity, contraception. Some contraceptives prevent pregnancy while others uh, terminate pregnancy. Uh, In vitro fertilization, other uh, IVF, What about the disposal of unused embryos and the selective abortion when IVS produces multiples? The scientific research that's done in reproductive cloning and embryonic stem cell research and when people practice genetic intervention to get the gender or to eliminate a disability that they don't want to have. This concept of human dignity versus the quality of life is is this concept that we're going to talk about today. And you and I both know that this conversation has become so polarized in our culture that we really hardly even talk to each other. We talk at each other from this side to this side. And, and for me growing up, it was pretty simple. It, it seemed pretty black and white. I'm right and you're wrong. It was, it was just that simple. And yet as I got older and I bumped into the pain and the trauma and the complication of, of those who are facing life and death situations and the choices that they make and the crisis that they find themselves in, I began to be less and less sure of what I wanted to say to those people in pain. And so I kind of like to avoid conflict. I don't love um, intense debate. That's just not how I'm wired. And so my take was kind of, I know what I believe. I know what I would choose, and then I'm just going to let everybody else do what they're going to do. Until a couple months ago when Steve Fowler walked into my office and he said, so Jennifer, you know that series we're going to be doing on culture shock? Yeah, 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 that, that one. He said, I'd like for you to teach on abortion. He says, because I think it would be valuable for that to come from a woman. 
And I agreed with him and I took a deep breath and he says, how do you feel about that? And I said, I feel a little overwhelmed. And I came back in a way and I thought, okay, uh, I, I got to dive into my word and I've got to see what God leads me to say. I dove into some uh, books and some authors that I respect. I dove onto the internet and took a look at what's the, what's the conversation that's going on on the internet. And I've come to form a picture of some things that I think are pretty important for us to talk about. But before we dive in, I want to start with the very first thing, and that's this. If the statistics that I read are correct, then by the age of 40, one in three women in the United States have had an abortion. And if that's accurate, then I am standing in a room of this size with this many people with several of you who have had abortions or who are impacted by abortion. And it's possible that as I even launch into this sermon, your heart is in your throat and you're wondering, is this going to be another one of those days where my shame is heaped on me and I learn that the church is not the place to deal with the crisis that I've been through, the decisions that I've made and the way that I've, the church is not the safe place. Is that what's going to happen today? And what I want you to hear is that this is a place of Grace. This is a place where our deepest hope, the reason we meet, the reason we exist, is to share the hope of Jesus Christ with others, the redeeming hope of Jesus, that he is our cleanser and our forgiver and our healer. And there's not one of us in this room that hasn't done something that has offended the nature and character of God that we call sin. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't need his forgiveness. And it's possible that for some of you who have faced abortion, you've talked about it with people. You've walked through healing. There's others of you who you have never talked with anyone about it. It is a secret that you have kept for a very long time. And in that, the enemy has kept shame heaped on top of you. And you need to hear, maybe the only thing you need to hear today is that the blood of Jesus can redeem your past. You can't rewrite your past, but it can be redeemed. And this can be the day that healing begins. This can be the day that healing begins. There's a woman named Sheila who had an abortion many years ago, and she lived in silence for seven years. And by her own testimony, she says that those were seven years of shame and pain and regret. And at some point along the way, she had an interaction with the living God, with people of the living God who expressed grace to her, and she walked a path of healing and forgiving, and God took away her shame and healed her pain, and he began to bring glory out of her regret. And what she said to God was, if I can save one woman from the pain and the regret and the shame that I have lived with for these seven years, then I will tell my story. And as she began to tell her story and start small groups to allow others to tell their story and to walk through their pain and the loss and to help facilitate healing for them, an organization was born. It's called Save One. We have a local chapter here in Salem. Some small groups happen at Morning Star Church and at Salem Heights Church. And if you find that you or someone you love has been touched by abortion, this would be a great group to pursue because you do not have to stay in silence. Church, we need to be the place where healing begins, not the place that, that puts so much shame on it that we can't talk about it here. And can I say that as Sheila began her groups and as I read her testimony of what happened, that men came to her and said, can I come to your group? See, we know that abortion doesn't just touch women. Abortion touches men, the, the boyfriend that, that pushed his girlfriend to have an abortion and has regretted it ever since. The husband that made his wife choose between staying married or getting an abortion. 
the husband or the boyfriend who wanted a child and who begged for the woman not to pursue an abortion and lost a child anyway. The grandparents who lost grandchildren, the siblings who lost siblings. There is a ripple effect. And if you've been touched by it, let today be the day that healing begins. This brochure that I held up is something that we've got at the information desk. I've got some in the front pew with me and there's some over where folks will pray with you. And if today isn't a day that you wanna grab a brochure, you can look up Save One Online. They've got some great information. Um, don't stay stuck. Don't stay stuck. I wanna dive in by setting up how we're gonna talk about what we talk about in 1 Peter chapter three. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it's on page 1,939 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. The reason I want to start here is because I think how we have this conversation is as important as the conversation that we have. And I want to set up how we have the conversation here. So starting in verse 15, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So we start that we must worship Christ as Lord of our lives. And we, we, we touch back to what Jeff and Steve talked about last week, that as followers of Christ, we submit our lives to his lordship. And when there are things that we don't understand or things that, that we can't wrap our mind around or things that we have questions about, we start from the place of saying, I am a follower of Christ. By faith, I have believed that this is the living word of God and I am going to submit myself to the authority of these words and the authority of the Holy Spirit and I declare myself to be a follower of the Lord of Christ. That's our starting point. And from there we recognize that we have a Christian hope. Friends, I have to confess to you, this has been a hard week to have hope. As I've turned on my computer and read day after day after day of new wounds and traumas and, and things that will just make you sick, and it's followed, it's following week upon week upon week of of more atrocities, of, of explosions and terrorist attacks and, and natural disasters. And there are times that it is so hard to have hope. That's why we come together here to be reminded that there is a God who saw the brokenness of our world and sent his son. And in the life and death and resurrection of his son, we are not stuck. We are not trapped in the suffering of this world, but he brings healing. He brings redemption. He brings hope. And we need to live out that hope because that is what will set us apart from the world that doesn't know God. And so when someone asks us about the hope that we have, we are ready to give an answer. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Isn't it interesting that even back when this was written... Sometimes when people gave an answer for their hope, they gave it in a condemning, judgmental, I'm right and you're wrong kind of way. And we've got to remember that if we want to have influence in our culture, we need to be answering people in a gentle and respectful way. Our tone, our character, our compassion matters if we want to have influence and a voice in a world that is not 
proclaiming to be Christ followers. Then, if people speak against you, so, see, we know that when we stand for truth and there is a conflict and we're on opposite side, there will be people who come against us who say that we're wrong. But if we have started under the lordship of Christ, we have lived in the hope that he's given us and we've expressed this in a gentle and respectful way, then we don't have to question our values, our worth, our position when people come against us and attack us. We can stand with love and gentleness and respect and say, I still believe this is truth. We can have conviction and compassion at the same time. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. I don't know in what form suffering might come. If, if, if there will be alienation because you express a belief that you have, if there will be a decision that you need to make that, that makes your life harder, I don't know what that might come for, but the word says that it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing wrong. And we remember and we're anchored on that Christ is the one who suffered for our sins so that he could bring us safely home to God, that he is the one who is our hope. So with this as our foundation, let's dive into the issue of the day, this issue of how do we speak life in a culture that seems to have already passed the tipping point of accepting death as a way to reduce and, and to address our problems. So first of all, I need to say that this issue is messy and it's complicated, and it's painful, and it's hurtful, and it hurts because it involves real people in the vulnerable place of facing life and death decisions. Terminal illness and chronic pain, the desire to alleviate human suffering of overpopulation, famine, and poverty, people who are despairing of life, women in an unplanned pregnancy facing fear, pressure from outside sources, threats to her own health and life, financial instability, or the breakdown of her reputation, women who are pregnant against their own will through rape and incest and sex slavery, couples who are struggling with infertility and wrestling with the questions that IVF brings up, people who struggle to be parents but who keep having babies and those babies keep landing in the foster care system, parents receiving the news that the baby they've hoped and possibly prayed for will possibly be severely disabled, and in their deep disappointment, they wonder what quality of life the child will have and if it would be more merciful to end this life before it apparently begins. Friends, these issues are argued in the political arena, in our courtrooms, and in online forums. But these issues are lived out in the homes and the hearts of people who are in some of the most difficult places they have ever faced. In the day-to-day -day lives of people who are hurting, scared, and trapped. People who find themselves or someone they love medically fragile with a terrifying diagnosis or young and alone and ill-equipped to deal with the situation they are in. We must have compassion. We can't stand on our black and white platform and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Because see, some of you, since the moment I said sanctity of life, have been waiting for me to declare my position so that you can know if you're gonna listen to me or not. And friends, while we will get to a position, if we get there without wrestling with the pain and the confusion and the trauma of the life that people in our world are living, then we will get to a position with an absolute inability to have any influence. Because our influence is gonna come by being in relationship with people who are doing real life in a broken world. Unfortunately, the conflict has escalated 
perhaps we could say it's degenerated, to the point that it's a key contributing factor in single-issue politics, vicious accusations, and name-calling. Quite frankly, when you start researching any of this on the internet and reading the comment section, <laughs> let me just pause for a second and say this. I don't know you. I don't know your hashtags. I don't know your online personality. I don't know if you respond to the comment section in blogs. But can I just say that we will never influence the heart and the opinion and the transforming need of our world on the blogs of this world and in the comment sections. People can't hear our tone of voice. They can't see the compassion in our eyes. They can't know our hearts and know who we are. We want to step in with truth, but we forget that we have no relationship behind the truth, and we come across as clanging gongs or clanging cymbals, and they can't hear the love. And in some of the things that are posted online by people who call themselves Jesus Jenny or Bible Bob, and they want to bring truth out and show that they're a Bible believer, they are pushing people farther away from the God that the world needs, and they are not wooing people to the love of Jesus Christ who came and died for us so that he could take us home. And we need to guard our tone and what we do. Friends, it's not to be taken to the blogs. Do blogs have a place for truth? Yes. Is it the place to carry on the arguments about these life and death decisions? I don't think so. See, as I did my research, I ran across things like people calling each other wingnuts and some Jesus Jenny saying to somebody who supported abortion, you are the sickest person on earth. Where is our influence when we are name calling? The way that we talk about this, we have vilified each other. We've polarized our vocabulary to such an extent that we don't even call each other by the names that we desire. We don't even respect the opposing side by calling them the name that they asked to be called. The pro-choice lobby calls the other side anti-choice, anti-women, and anti-abortion. The pro-life voice calls the other side anti-life and pro-abortion. We've got this conflict going on and we sound like little kids. Did not, did two, did not, did two, did not, did two. Are any of you parents? I'm serious, raise your hands, are you parents? Is this not one of the most aggravating things that happens? It's, it's the thing that brings the impatient out of me so fast. Did not, did two, did, knock it off. You're not even talking about what you're talking about. There's nothing going on here. And that's what we sound like. I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. How do we break the stalemate of the conversation that really actually isn't even happening? Years ago, I took the Peacemaker Seminar here at Salem Alliance, and one of the truths that has stuck with me for over 20 years was this reality that we are so quick to judge the position of others that we fail to hear the interest of others. I learned that when I'm in a conflict, I need to consider a person's interest, the values that motivate their heart, the things that they fear, the underlying cause for the position that they hold. I need to consider that interest before I can engage in a healthy way in the conversation or the conflict. And so what I want to ask us to do today could be difficult for most of us, but I want to ask us to extricate this idea of life extricate it from its political implications. And I know we're in a political season, that's hard, but go with me for a bit here. Extricate this conversation from its political implications, from being able to formulate your argument against their argument or their argument against this argument, and pull back to the view of what are the underlying causes that influence, what's the interest of the positions that people hold? And that may be hard because 
you want to know what my position is. You, and we all need a position. But again, if we get there without recognizing the influence, then we get there without having influence. So I want to dive into my understanding of the pro-choice interest. I'm sure I don't have it all. These were some key things that I discovered as I did some reading and looking. And the first one is mercy. One of the underlying interests of the pro-choice movement is an unwillingness to see people suffer, either physically or emotionally. Deeply compassionate people who are longing for a way for men and women in excruciating life circumstances to have a way out. The interest is mercy. Another interest is safety. Based on some statistics from the World Health Organization, 47,000 women die each year from unsafe abortions. And so one of the interests is to provide safety with the belief that laws against abortion do not stop abortion, they simply make it less safe. Another underlying interest is independence or individuality. A belief that every person has the right to make the choices that impact them and no one else should be able to make those choices for them. There was a movie that came out recently that demonstrated this amazingly. It's a movie called Me Before You. I'm sorry for those of you who don't like spoilers. You can plug your ears and go, no, 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 I'm not listening for 30 seconds. But it's a movie about a guy who gets paralyzed and he chooses death rather than living with disability. Now, while I can cringe at the message that Death is better than disability. What I understand is the underlying motive, the interest is his independence. No one can take away his right to have his life be what he wants his life to be. And kind of to sum it all up is there's this interest to reduce human suffering. The pro-choice movement wants to reduce human suffering. And if we take a look at this list together, and if we could set aside the filter that we were just talking about a conversation that has to do with life and death decisions, and just look at the list, this is a list that you and I can agree with. This is a list. These are interests that you and I have in common. Mercy. Of course we want mercy. Our God is a merciful God. Mercy is a value in the Christian faith. Safety. We all invest, just like our culture and nation do, in safety, safety precautions, uh, life jackets, um, building inspections, building codes. We, we want safety as much as the next person wants safety. Independence. What do we tell kids when they're little? You can grow up to be whatever you want to be. You are an individual. You are unique. You can have the life that you want to have. We are as invested in independence as the next person is. And reduce human suffering? Of course we want to reduce human suffering. I want to reduce human suffering. It's terrible the way humanity suffers. It's terrible. When we consider the interests of others, we find that they are not demons who are seeking the destruction of human life. We find compassionate people just like you and I who are doing the best they can to find their way and their influence in the world. And you know what? I get it. I get it. One of the stories I read was a woman who was diagnosed with brain cancer. And when she got her diagnosis and her prognosis and began to understand what it was going to be like to die from cancer eating away your brain, she moved to Oregon, 
so that she could access our death with dignity laws, so that she could get a prescription to take something so that she could choose when and where and with whom she died rather than dying the horrific death that is brain cancer. And I get it. I get the doctors who would choose to assist with suicide when they see people in pain. I get the women who think abortion is their only option. See, without God, this all makes sense. Without God, where else would we turn but to ourselves? We've said that every person is entitled to do what they want. A culture has been created, a culture of entitlement and self-fulfillment that makes each person his or her own God. Without God, it makes sense to seek an end to the pain of this life through assisted suicide. Without God, it makes sense to prioritize the life and desires of a woman over the life and value of an unborn child. Without God, the world is doing the best they can to alleviate human suffering because without God, there is no hope. He's the light of the world. He's the hope of mankind. He's the redemption to death and brokenness. And without God, there is no hope. In Corinthians, Paul says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They cannot see. Again in Corinthians, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, you and I have to stop being offended by a world that does not proclaim to follow God and does not understand spiritual things because they do not have the Holy Spirit of the living God in them and cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ and cannot see hope other than in their own ways and in their own capacity and in their own capabilities. One of the ways that summarized this pro-choice perspective was found in AM, Supreme Court opinion that was given in 1992. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Friends, without God, it is all on me to define my own concept of existence, to define meaning, to define the universe and the mystery of human life, that's terrifying. It's all on me. The danger of trying to figure all this out with logic, trying by our own human rationale and understanding to make sense of this broken world is number one, that we can't, and number two, that we miss God's ways. Isaiah 55, starting in verse eight, says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, when we get into these things in our culture that are shifting and that are changing and that we have conversations and conflicts about, there are going to be things that we don't understand that we cannot wrap our minds around and will we accept and submit to the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and he is God and he gets to be God. See, when we talk about what I'm calling the polarizing arguments, we do need to know how to respond to specific factors of this conversation. 
And I want to say that as I did my research and read, there are some people who have invested wisely in how to carry on this conversation and express the interest of a pro-life side of things. I'm not going there today because I don't actually want to go to the nitty gritty, how do we answer questions part. I want to stay at this level of what is the interest here. But I need you to know that it's there and people have answered wisely. And yet what we need to do is submit to God and say, even when we don't understand, even when we can't see how to answer, you are still God. And so here's the interest that I found underlying this, this speak life, this choose life side of this conversation. And the first is that we are, as humankind, made in God's image. We find it in Genesis 1.27, from the very beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see again in Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. There is something intrinsic, intrinsic value that we as humans hold that comes from being made in God's image that means that taking the life of a human is different than taking the life of any other life form on earth. It's why the sixth commandment is you shall not murder because we were made in God's image. The second one is the value of all life. Our culture has a very narrow window of what kind of life is valued. What kind of life is successful? And when we start making life and death decisions based on what we think value is, we miss something very important. A spiritual leader of our time said, all life has inestimable value, even the weakest and most vulnerable. The sick, the old, the unborn, and the poor are masterpieces of God's creation, made in his own image, destined to live forever, and deserving of the utmost reverence and respect. All life is valuable. A woman approached me last night after the second service to introduce me to her son. They went to a foreign country to adopt him. He has Down syndrome. We were talking about how sad it is that often the genetic selection that is happening in these life and death decisions is to eliminate or terminate a life that's determined to not have value because they're going to be disabled. Friends, do you know the joy, the simplicity, the childlike faith? that can come from a child with a disability. Yes, I know, it's harder. That doesn't make it less valuable. Another is that God ordains our days. We find in Psalm 139 kind of the cornerstone of the pro-life interest, which is this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Friends, God is the one who gets to make life and death decisions. God is the one who created us in his image and he ordains our days. Abortion is a morally unacceptable alternative for birth control, population control, gender selection, elimination of the physically and the mentally handicapped. I wanna pause for just a second and say this. 
When I was about four months pregnant with our daughter, Abigail, we began to find that there were some issues that were coming up. And, and we know now, and those of you who've seen Abigail know that she's perfectly healthy after several surgeries in her younger years. She was born with several birth defects, none of them life-threatening. But at four months pregnant, I went into a doctor's appointment where they told me that they didn't know what was wrong, that they needed to send me to a geneticist. They weren't sure what was going on. It might be cerebral palsy. And there was just this massive opening up of the unknown. I get how scary that can be. I remember thinking and praying, am I going to be caring for this little one for the rest of my life? Is this what my life is this, did this just happen? Am I going to be caring for a disabled person for the entirety of their life? I get the questions that come up. I understand. And yet one of the things that my husband and I talked about is that light shines brightest against a dark backdrop. And if God is choosing for this to be the backdrop for his light, who am I to say that I won't shine with that as my backdrop? I believe that God ordains our days. I believe that all life is valuable. I believe that we are created in God's image. And if a disability is part of that, then so be it. Because it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing what is wrong. And the fourth for today interest of this pro-life would be the hope of redemption. We have a hope that in this world there is healing. There is restoration. There is salvation. In Psalm, the psalmist says it like this in Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. We have a hope of redemption that causes us to believe that choosing life is always the way to go, that speaking life to those who are in question is the way to go. Take a look. If we look at these two lists side by side, we see that one of the interests is to reduce human suffering, and those of us who follow Christ, we are interested in the fact that we know there is a hope of redemption. Here's what has to happen. Those of us who know the hope of redemption have to speak the truth that we believe it is the way to reduce human suffering. We have to make the connection. We have to build a bridge. We have to cross over and say, it's not just that we're against your point of view, but we believe we have a truth that will help your point of view. Because you see, in this column here, those that have been pursuing the reduction of human suffering have actually been compounding human suffering with good intentions. And because they're merciful, they've been creating a situation where a woman who's violated adds violence to that violation. They've created a situation where a young girl trying to save her reputation and keep a secret creates a pain that can haunt her for years and years and years until she runs into the forgiving grace and cleansing of Jesus Christ that says that he is enough even for those things that are your deepest shame. We hold the hope of the world in the person of the Holy Spirit and we've got to find a way to communicate that to a world that they can hear. We will not influence the mind and opinion of our culture until we can influence the heart of our culture. So how do we find our way? We find our way by anchoring our beliefs and our character and our actions to the word of God. And how do we find our influence? We find our influence by speaking that truth in a way that others can hear. See, we live in a world full of people with no biblical compass. 
we will rarely, if ever, influence our secular culture with the vocabulary of biblical arguments. I was looking at some of these online and they just instantly dismiss Bible verses or words about God because they say, look, you're God maybe, but not everybody believes in God, so your argument has no validity with me. How do we take the truths that we believe from God's word, know them deep enough and embed them in who we are, what we believe and how we live to such an extent that we can speak a language that our unbelieving neighbors can understand? Hear me, we need to know the Bible, but we don't need to use the Bible as a hammer to try to convince people that they're wrong. We need to use our knowledge of the Bible and the infilling of the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom for how to engage people and talk to their interests, not just laying our Bible belief on top of their position. Because our influence, honestly, while I think we need to know what we believe and be able to communicate what we believe, I believe our influence is gonna be most powerful in relationship. Our influence is found in relationship. So with the humility that comes from understanding that everything that I've been given comes from God, even the faith to believe that his word is true comes from him, I engage in relationship. What would happen if we invested in young women who are vulnerable to choosing abortion? What if we got involved in mentoring or parachurch organizations like Young Life or Young Lives that serves um, teenage moms? What about getting involved in foster care or community agencies that are bringing hope, visiting the elderly or the shut-in who are despairing of life? What about save one? Can I just say that those of you who have had an abortion or been touched by abortion might have the most powerful voice to speak life of any of us sitting in these pews? because you more than anybody can speak to the young girl or the woman who's considering abortion? Can I just pause and say this? If you're considering abortion, would you talk to somebody you trust? I know that there are women who have had an abortion who would say, don't do it. You've got a problem as you see it and you think this is gonna solve your problem, but it's gonna create more pain than you could ever imagine and you will wish that you hadn't done it. You will wish that you had made a different decision in your moment of crisis. And I know it's scary, and I know you feel trapped, and I know you're afraid for your reputation, and maybe you were raised in the church, and you're afraid. But please, please, consider to choose life and talk with someone you trust. Talk with your parents, talk with a youth pastor, talk with me. And parents and advisors and youth pastors and people who mentor, when someone comes to you with a crisis decision, with something that shows a failure or something you might consider a sin, would you meet them with grace? Would you answer with hope? Would you save your anger and frustration and disappointment for a time when they can't see it in your eyes because some people are afraid to come to you because they're afraid of your response? And life and death hang in the balance of us being godly people who will answer with grace, even in the face of brokenness and even in the face of sin. So, what's my position? My position is that God is Redeemer. My position is that he is the one who can take what the enemy means for evil and turn it to good. My position is the one that God is the one who sees, who knows, who is mercy. My position is that any mercy that points towards death is a misguided and a misdirected mercy. 
It's a mercy that does not take into account the saving grace, the healing power, and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. He holds out his arm to the hurting and the hopeless, to the abused and the trapped, to the wounded and the weary, and he says, come, there is hope. Do not despair of life. I am. Will we let God be God and trust him with the truly painful situations in life? Will we trust that he is truly enough to the terminally ill and the chronic pain sufferers? Friends, you and I all know people who have suffered chronic pain. And yet I have also heard those chronic pain sufferers say, God is good and my walk with him is different because of what I suffer. And continuing to be engaged and continuing to influence their world and influence people in their world and have something to give and something to offer even in the midst of suffering. Will we believe that God is enough for life-threatening health issues, for the pregnant and the scared, for the victims of sexual violence and for all who face life and death crisis? Do we believe that God is God and that God is enough? Do we be- Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were the Israelites who didn't bow down to the big statue. And so Nebuchadnezzar came to them and he was threatening with them with death and he was going to throw them in the fiery furnace. Do you remember what they said? They said, our God can save us from your fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Our God can do miracles. He can can heal disabilities. He can save women who've been told that their health is at risk. He can enter in and he can intervene. But even if he doesn't, do we still believe he is God? Do we still believe that he has conquered death? And if life ends on this earth, it will continue in eternity. Will we let God be God or will we step in and try to control things with our own wisdom and our own experience? Will we, like that Supreme Court justice say, we are the ones who get to decide the meaning of life and the quality of human life or will we let God be God? As the worship team comes up, I want to finish with a verse in Isaiah. It's a verse that speaks to the redeeming work of God that brings us our hope. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames of hell will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance. 